So I had a colleague a uh, number of years ago. He's actually no longer with us. Um, he died of cancer. But the first time he had cancer, a number, number of years ago, he actually was doing pretty well, and he needed a number of months to recover, to recuperate in the late fall, early winter when he and his partner lived in New England. And he spent a lot of time in the afternoons, particularly when his energy was starting to ebb and he didn't quite feel very strong. He spent a lot of time in this beautiful solarium that was attached right next to their house. And he would sit in the warm winter sun, at least what came through the windows, and feel the sun on his face and feel refreshed and feel that this was exactly where he needed to be and exactly what he needed to do. And it wasn't just the sun, it wasn't just the fact that he was sort of absorbing these wonderful rays, it was also the fact that in the solarium there are all these beautiful kind of plants all around him and he felt, you know, fed by the nature outside and fed that the nature that was around him as well and he felt this was really aiding his recuperation and the building up of his soul and of his strength. And he noticed something, again, because this was in late fall and early winter and they lived north of Boston. And if you've ever lived way, way, way north in those fall and winter months, you know that the sunlight is really, really spare. And so he tried to soak up as much as he could, you know, big seasonal affective mood disorder, whatever they call it. That's how I would feel if I had to deal with that little amount of sunshine every day. And he noticed something out the corner of his eye. I forget the name of the plant, but he told me one time. It was a plant that had a very long trunk, almost sort of a, a really thick stem, and had leaves that sort of went up towards the top. My sister is a florist, but I know absolutely nothing about flowers and horticulture, so I'll just describe it as a plant with a really thick stem and a lot of trees at the top. One of the things he noticed was that after a few weeks, it looked, it seemed, he wondered at first if it, as if it was an optical illusion, that the plant seemed to be growing in his direction. After a few weeks, after a month of this, he wondered what was the deal. Perhaps, perhaps his healing. Now he had mystical powers over the plants and over the things of the earth. And perhaps the plant was being drawn towards him, drawn towards his love, drawn towards his power and his healing. He got over that real quick. But what he realized is that the plant, after about a month and a half of that, was in fact, it was not an optical illusion. It was growing in his direction, but it was not because of him. It was growing in his direction because he sat in the place that had the utmost light every single day. And so if we had some time-lapse photography, you could imagine over these two months that he was recuperating, you could see the plant doing this, bending towards the light. But in fact, of course, we don't have time-lapse photography when we're living day by day by day. And so just incrementally, in the smallest ways possible, and only visible after the days are elapsed, that plant was turning and turning and turning and turning into the place where it was able to absorb the most light, the most warmth, the most health that it could get for itself. It was turning in the direction of the light. And because of this, I think we could say that this plant was undergoing a conversion. See, that's what conversion actually means. It means literally to turn, 
to turn in the direction of faith, to turn in the direction of God, to turn in the direction of love, to turn ourselves sometimes away from something, but also towards something else that helps us grow and helps us heal and helps us flourish, just as that plant needed that light to flourish and become all that it could be. This morning I want to talk about conversion, about conversions by love and conversions through love. Conversions by love and conversions through love. Years ago, and maybe some of you have this association, years ago if you would have mentioned the word conversion to me, I would have thought Saul who became Paul from the Christian scriptures, struck by lightning, literally strung out on the road to Damascus. Hit by the lightning, fell off his horse, heard that big word from the sky, Saul, why do you persecute my people? That is a image of conversion. Just one. Just one. And I don't think it really has the kind of depth that we talk about when we're really talking about what conversion is. It is sort of a typically immature understanding of conversion in which we are completely overwhelmed, literally struck by lightning, robbed of our capacities, our old self is replaced with a new, entirely new person. But in this kind of schema, we see that someone else, very often in the traditional way, God is seen as doing the work for us, and we kind of disappear. I think this is an immature way of thinking about conversion. There are deeper ways to talk about it. And perhaps all of us have become a little cynical about hearing people talk about their conversion experience. I have some born-again Christian friends, and some of them talk with great depth and great sustenance about their process of conversion, and they mean it. It's not my process, although some things are certainly shared. But, you know, when we get on television, as I like to do, 2 o'clock in the morning, and I'm slipping through those stations, and I find those televangelists, and they're talking about that one moment, that decision of giving your life to Jesus, and this is the moment of conversion, and nothing else is similar to what it was before. I got to think they're protesting just a little too much. I can't quite buy it. I can't quite buy it. There was a guy named Richard Rosenzweig who wrote a very influential book in the 1960s called After Auschwitz. And really what he was trying to do was reconfigure thousands of years of Jewish history in the light of the horrible example of Auschwitz. He's saying if God is literally the kind of God who controls everything, then God was running the trains to the death camps. And he was trying to wake up his fellow Jews. Now he told a story in the book after Auschwitz, he actually, by replacing that traditional God, he actually became enamored of a different kind of God that he called Freudian psychotherapy. That God also failed him in time too. But he did tell this one story about a change that wasn't a conversion, where he went to seminary, he went to Jewish Theological Seminary, which some of you know is the conservative seminary. Now, this is part of the nomenclature of American Judaism. Conservative Judaism is more progressive than Orthodox Judaism, but not quite there on the level of Reform Judaism. So it's sort of that middle ground between the tradition and also accepting the modern world. And one of his fellow students at JTS, at Jewish Theological Seminary, this conservative Jewish seminary, grew up in an extremely, almost Hasidic Orthodox home in which the laws of kosher, of kashrut, were religiously, ritualistically observed every single day. And even though this guy felt a call to be a rabbi, he was bearing a lot of that dead weight from that very oppressive kind of Orthodox environment in which he grew up. And so he would bring his lunch, and he would bring very often the same lunch day after day, and he would tell everyone, I am eating a ham sandwich. I am eating a ham sandwich. Look at me. I'm liberated from my past. I'm eating a ham sandwich. I am flaunting, flouting the laws of kashrut, of kosher. 
I am free. I am liberated. Look at me. And Richard Rosen's wife, who knew you know, just a little something about Freudian psychotherapy, said, no, he's not free at all. He is still held in thrall to exactly where he came from. He was making a change, but it wasn't a conversion. It wasn't a turning towards something good. It was just a turning his back on something that he was still angry about. And it wasn't at all like our plant. It wasn't at all like our plant that is leaning and turning and bending into the light to get for itself the most health that it can. Now, this message series is about the art and practice of loving. And I offered last week, I'm going to repeat it now, a very simple definition of what real love is. It is a heartfelt concern for the flourishing of life and a mindful commitment to create the conditions under which life flourishes. I'll repeat that. Love is a heartfelt concern for the flourishing of life and a mindful commitment to create the conditions under which life flourishes. That is a process of conversion, of conversion by love to the fullness of existence. Now, one of the most well-known conversion, classically kind of conversion stories, comes from actually the second song today from Amazing Grace. How many of you know the story or some of the story of John Newton? Okay, you know some of that story. You know that he was, if you don't, I'll tell it to you right now, he was a former slave ship captain. He trafficked in the lives of other human beings and delivered them into oppression and death and slavery. I want to show you a clip from a movie that came out this past year called Amazing Grace. And I just want to describe it a little bit before you bring it up. He is talking to a guy named William Wilberforce. William Wilberforce is a younger member of parliament who more than anyone else was responsible for the ending of the slave trade in the British Empire. This movement started in the late 1700s into the 1800s. I believe finally it was outlawed in the 1830s. Now this clip I'm going to show you has some language in it that really, you know, let's face it, it's not terribly liberal religious. Newton is talking about Christ is a great savior and I am a great sinner. Now, I would also say that someone who trafficked in the deaths and in the abrogating of the freedom of 20,000 souls, well, he has some reckoning to do. But what I want you to see and I want you to hear is his focus upon those lives, those lives that he remembers and what he's talking about writing right now and delivering to William Wilberforce to take to the parliament is a tract that he wrote against the slave trade many years after he had ceased being a slave ship captain. Amazing Grace is the name of the movie. I once was blind and now I see. He wrote that years before, but it is only true, he said, later in his life. His conversion is what we call an example of agape. Last week I told you that I really believe English is impoverished when it comes to the language of love because when we talk about love, most often what we hear is romantic love. And as important as that is, it is just one kind, as the Greeks called it eros. And then there's Philly, uh, Philly, Philadelphia, philia, example of brotherly love or sisterly love or community. Agape, though, is what converted John Newton. That sense of that spiritual love that unites all lives, that connects him to the 20,000 ghosts, as he says, the lives who he cannot forget and does not want to forget because he is responsible for them. Now, I have to tell you, when I was told this story a long time ago, I actually heard it in a sermon for the first time in seminary. And it was so dramatic, it brought me to tears. 
because I was told the story of this behind Amazing Grace. I was told the story behind the great hymn. And I was told this, that what happened was John Newton was out in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean on one of those slave ships carrying people to America and the loss of their freedom and the loss of their lives. And that there was a great storm and the boat started to take on water and he dropped to his knees. He dropped to his knees and said, Oh God, I beseech thee, stop these waves, stop these waters from coming into my boat and I will turn this boat around and I will take these people back and restore their freedom if you will restore my life, O oh God. Please have mercy on me, a sinner. Powerful stuff. And not at all true. The story of the storm is true. The story of the storm by which and through which he composed amazing grace is true. But he continued as a slave ship captain for five years after that. Those words he wrote, as we saw in the clip, was blind, but now I see. I wrote that too, he asked William Wilberforce. Now I believe it. Years later in life, he came to believe it. It's not about the romanticized version. It's about love claiming a hold over our lives and changing us, sometimes fitfully and sometimes even with difficulty. All real conversions, especially by love, take time to take hold of us. See, the feeling is not enough. Love very often, and you know, when I sing Amazing Grace, it just moves me so much. I love that feeling. I love aiming for the heart. You probably know that's part of how I approach my messages here. But love simply as a feeling is not enough. And love reflected on as an idea, as an experience for us, is also not enough, although both those things are necessary. For love to truly become real, love must be a practice. It must be something that we integrate into our lives on a daily basis or else we have hollow love or empty words or windy words, as the Bible likes to call them. See, Newton was converted by a love so strong that it seized him and it changed him in spite of himself. And you can see that. I mean, it's the great Albert Finney playing him right there. And I really believe the truth of that, even if historically it didn't happen exactly that way. That he is seized by his, yes, remorse and also his love for those 20,000 beautiful Africans who he treated with such callous evil. His conversion by love allowed him to change, and it also held him accountable. It is not an easy love or a cheap love. It is a love that has true purchase upon his life. This conversion takes him from that narrow kind of concern to that wider love. This was the shape of Newton's turning, and it took time, but it made a difference. He was instrumental, let's remember, in ending the slave trade in the entire British Empire. This kind of conversion by love requires us and calls us to focus. It calls us to focus and it calls us to clarity and it provides a beacon and an orientation for our living. It is not an easy kind of love. It couldn't be or it wouldn't make the changes inside of each and all of us that very often are required if we, like the plants, are going to turn into the full fullness of our lives. That's what's meant by those words, once I was blind but now I see. That sight, that sees, that is really real, that is a practice, that is something that is required of us every day if we are going to see what is there. The Hindus have a wonderful word for this kind of experience. 
It's called darsan. Literally, it is translated as auspicious seeing or auspicious sight. And it is one of the devotional practices of the Hindu tradition, the Hindu faith. Now, I've read about darsan for years, but I think what's most important is actually when I saw someone experiencing darsan for the first time. What happened was that I was a student in New York at seminary, and we were taking one of those field trips to other people's faith to learn about what they were doing. This is when you talk about the religious other in left-wing seminaries like I went to, and you don't want to project your experience onto the religious other. I don't want to demean all this, but it gets a little bit too much after a while. Basically, we were just going to learn, and learn is what I did. We were at a temple dedicated to the Lord Ganesha, who within the Hindu tradition is the God, the deity responsible for beginnings and also the removing of obstacles and paths that block us from moving towards full life. And there was a young woman who looked like any sort of other traditional young professional woman in New York City coming in off the street. It was a winter day. She was all wrapped up and she took off all of her almost, you know, all of her outer clothes and she just sat down in her jeans and her t-shirt and she started what I thought at first was staring at this icon of Lord Ganesha. And at first... What did I know? I, I didn't get it. I got, okay, this sounds like a ritual to me. It seems like one of those empty rituals that I know I grew up with. But when I really started to see her, when I really started to see what was happening to her as she intentedly, as she with full consciousness and full sight held in this auspicious sight her view of the Lord Ganesha, her breathing slowed. And the sort of crinkle around her eyes the creases went away and she gathered this almost wonderful small smile I could see that this element of darsan of entering into full sight of something beautiful and holy really was changing her life I gotta say and this is a point at which I think I had meditated for all about maybe 10 minutes straight at this point in my life, she sat there and I counted after a while a full 35 minutes entering into this devotional practice of keeping her gaze and her eyes upon upon Lord Ganesha. This is once being blind and now seeing. She found in her tradition, her probably adopted tradition, the true north the homing beacon, the accountability, the focus of real sight, of knowing what is there and seeing it fully and having it change her. Now, I guess one of the reasons I really remember this story so much is, one, it it just moved me. It was probably the first experience I had had of observing someone else in true, deep religious practice, not just ritual. And also because I myself in my life have been converted by love, not against my will, but by something that, yes, in a way superseded, but also completed the will for myself that I always wanted. Last week, I told you about my call to ministry in the shower. I'm not going to go into that again because I am red hair and fair skinned and I got very embarrassed. So if you want to ask me afterward, if you weren't here, I'll tell you that. But I want to tell you the other time I was converted by love, and it's something I've shared with you before. I've really experienced two calls like this in my life. One was the call to ministry, and the other was the call to sobriety. And it's not as something I boast of, it's not something I should boast about, but it's something I feel incredibly grateful for. Those words, I once was blind and now I see, mean something very deep to me in my life 
It has gained a purchase upon my soul because of the kind of love that has turned me from a narrow path and very often a fearful path, even a resentful path, towards a path in which, frankly, I still struggle with all that kind of stuff. But now I know what the fights are. And now I am more equipped to meet those things with love. See, the thing is, in any true love, in any real conversion, it is so much more than just the great, exciting rush of falling in love. I think that's one of our fascinations with conversion stories, is it's just like an agape version of the romantic versions of falling in love with another person. I remember when I heard on, I think it was, um, what's that Terry Gross show? Fresh Air, 3 o'clock, airs right here in Philadelphia, originates here. And she was interviewing the uh, original writer for Sex and the City. And he was talking about the rush of early love, of romantic love, and why it's so wonderful. Because what we find in there is not the other person we find, and we see ourselves through the eyes of the other person, what he calls the glory of me. (laughs) That's why falling in love feels so wonderful, because we are just so glorious. We are beheld and accepted and found sexy and found desirable and attractive by someone else. And isn't this incredible? It is a drug, literally in our brains, the endorphin through the sky. You know, evolutionary, we're equipped with this kind of stuff. However, however, it is only the practice, as we know, as those of you who have been in romantic partnerships for years and some of you far, far longer than, than myself know, after a while... That romance, it changes. It has to. And if it is going to become true love, it is replaced by that deeper call in which the fireworks are replaced by that spark that reignites itself day after day after day after day. And it requires a practice. requires our commitment. And sometimes it also requires, yes, some of you probably shake your heads and nod at this, It requires as well those days in which the spark just isn't there. That's what true love is all about. As they say, it happens one day at a time. And the work is never exhausted. It is, by definition, I think, eternal. As we would describe what is eternal. It deepens and it grows and there is no cap upon it. There is no place where it ends, even if our lives do end. And this is, I think, what, in a religious way, what in a spiritual way, John Newton was getting at in that later stanza of the song. When we've been there 10,000 years bright shining as the sun, we've no less days to sing God's praise than when we first begun. Even after, as he imagines, it's 10,000 years, we're still doing the work. There still is something to praise. There still is growth that we can imagine and envision and grow toward. True conversion is never once and done. It's never just the moment of being knocked by lightning off of our horse and having everything change in an instant. It takes time. And so a conversion is not just by love. The conversion is really through love. The conversion isn't just the call. It is the practice. It is our daily commitments through our habits and our attitudes to our flourishing and to the flourishing of the object that we love. And these things very often start small. I just want to share with you a real tiny example from my life and really share with you how much attitudes, and we know this already, I think you do, how much attitudes really can change habits and habits reinforce attitudes. For me, it's feeding the rabbits. We have three pet rabbits, and very often I am charged, sorry, Teresa, with the job of sort of maintaining them. She has asthma, sometimes getting a little too close when they get a little messy, when they need food. I'm happy to take that on. 
But sometimes, yeah, it feels like a chore. It feels like a chore. And one day I was sort of grousing at them, and I'm like, you guys are worthless, and you know, you're very cute, but I've had you now for a few years, and your cuteness is starting to wear thin. Let's have a little something back here. This isn't quite a mutual relationship. But then I thought, well, you know, I don't want to get rid of them, really. This is just me being, you know, a little persnickety. And I started to change my attitude. That I am feeding them. That every day, without their being fed by me, sometimes by my wife, without this feeding, they would not be able to exist. This is the kind of accountability that all real love calls us to. And it can change our attitude from the rote and the obligatory to the real and to the loving. And so I want you to think of the things in your lives that perhaps you have to do every single day and think about how an attitude change in loving the object or loving the practice could really alter the conversion experience and you don't go from the ham sandwich kind of experience of look at me, look at the externals and I'm living the ritual but I'm not living the meaning. This is what an attitude change of love can do to our daily habits and very often it might not require many outward or external changes at all but our experience of the thing changes it. And I do have to say now when I feed the rabbits I spend some time thinking that I am feeding you, I am helping you live, This is a devotional practice. It is an act of love, not just an obligation I have to discharge. And all of us, as we grow in love, we follow that individual love or the individual love of the daily practices into that wider and deeper love and feel ourselves changing. Ovid, and I read this actually in the Inquirer this past week on Valentine's Day, Ovid, the Roman thinker, he said, skill makes love unending. Skill makes love unending. This is the realization of true love in all of our being. It is not a selfish insistence upon my will, and it is not a self-defeating focus on your will. It is the practice and the depth of experience that comes when we know what our will is together. Where life is reunited with life, and yes, of course, it does take work, and it does even require, I think, for all of us, conversion. A conversion to recognizing the depth that, of course, we are not the only ones here alone. Neither are we bigger or smaller than anyone else. We are a part. We are a part and we are connected. For a conversion through and by love to take purchase upon who you are, really three things are required. The first is receptivity. You've got to be open. You've got to be open to the call. You've got to be willing to admit what you don't know already and open to what is yet to come. And the second thing is accountability. Remember what birthed in you the love that you have and commit to feeding it. Commit to honoring it. And even more than anything else, remember to be grateful for it. And the third thing is determination. Receptivity, accountability, and determination. Make the daily choices to honor the things and the people that you love through habits and attitudes all the way up to the point that they become your character and you are able to say truly in your being, I am loving. I am loving. This kind of conversion, I believe, brings us into full life. And yes, sometimes it even does help us make the really, really tough choices. The tough choices to stay focused and stay connected when we wish to sort of check out. And actually, what I thought of this week when I was thinking of this idea was an episode of The Simpsons. 
you probably, well, some of you have been around for a while know that I like to pay attention to them very often. It's the one in which is the story of the birth of Maggie, who's the youngest of the Simpson children, the one who never really talks, except on this episode when she says the word daddy, when she says the word daddy. Now, Homer, thinking that there's only the two kids, there's only Bart and Lisa, and all the bills are paid off and they're completely out of debt, he tells Mr. Burns, I'm out of here. No more nuclear plant for me. And he fulfills his life's ambition to become a pin jockey at the local bowling alley. This is what he wants to do. He wants to shine the shoes. He wants to shine the balls. He wants to set up the pins. This is what he wants to do. He is living his calling and he has never, ever been happier. But, you know, what they say, uh, you know, life is what happens when we're making other plans. As it is, Marge gets pregnant. Homer has to return, not as an applicant, but in a wonderful little image, not through the door, but as a supplicant crawling through a dog door back into Mr. Burns' office, his ogre of a boss. And he gives him his job back, but with a twist. Mr. Burns says, for your insolence, for your insubordination, for daring to quit, I will give you this demotivational plaque. (laughs) I hope none of you have ever had a boss like this, and I certainly hope none of you are bosses like this. A demotivational plaque that says, don't forget, you're here forever. (laughs) Don't forget, you're here forever. Now, Homer's had to give up his dream. And you might think, perhaps this ends sadly. It doesn't. Because as we get to the very end of the episode, Bart, in his sort of inimitable way, pipes up, well, why don't we see any pictures of Maggie throughout this house? And Homer says, I keep them exactly where I need them. And you go back to his office and you see that demotivational plaque. And you see that the words very strategically have been covered over in various places so that the pictures transform. Don't forget, you'll be here forever to the pictures of Maggie that now spell out, do it for her. Do it for her. This is true love. Those of you who are parents, you know this kind of love. You know this kind of self-sacrifice that isn't an obligation, but truly a call. It's actually something I heard as well, taking it from the situational comedy of The Simpsons out into real life. Josh Marshall, who's one of my favorite bloggers, he writes on TalkingPointsMemo.com. He's turning 39, or just turned 39 this past week, and he's writing about the fact that he is feeling himself happier than at any other point in his life, more fulfilled in his work, more fulfilled in his love, more fulfilled in his family. And he writes about a number of the reasons why, but finally he says it comes down to this. But beyond all those organized thoughts, I find fatherhood simply a mystery. A very concrete one I find sitting in my bed in front of me each morning but one that hits me in some suddenly brand new way several times a day and has wrapped me into a kind of love and devotion completely different from anything I've ever experienced before. I love those words. One that hits me in some suddenly brand new way several times a day and wrapped me into a kind of love and devotion. This is the conversion by and through love. And for those of you who are parents, when you see your kids sitting there right there on the bed and they're not going away, they're not going anywhere. I'm sure that is a very insistent call and one that robs you of your sleep. But I'm sure you also know the joys of it as well. This is the conversion by and through love. 
when life turns into something beyond what we had ever known and perhaps even ever hoped for, but is the fulfillment of our wishes for what life could really be and the depth of love that we can experience. And this kind of love, not just as parents and not just as partners, not just as people who work in companies that I hope you love, not just as people who have friends, not just people who are growing spiritually, but in all those ways. This is the way that true love changes us and guides our steps day after day after day. It's kind of like one of those old-time kids' picture books that I'm not sure even exist anymore now in the internet age. But the kind, you know, those flip books, like a cartoon comic, and you flip it really, really quickly, and you see, you know, very often it's like a stick figure going, you know, walking across, and you see that movement. We know it's an illusion. Actually, there is no movement. How we see that happening is that, in fact, page by page, we see one small step and one small arm arm movement and then one bit of progress here and one bit of progress there kind of like that tree that plant that my friend my colleague saw in his life and experienced when it was bending towards the light like a kid's picture book this is exactly how we make progress and are converted through this life small movements small changes small conversions to love daily that over time yes sometimes our and i'll speak for myself personally the desire is to want to just flip the picture book and said i want to get through to the real conversions the real changes at the end of the line but you know what if any of us could look back and we could flip those pages slowly that have preceded us to this place we can see that there is movement and there is progress and there will be more Love is only full in time. And love is only full in our practice and our devotion to loving. So let all of us, like the tree, like the page after page after page in the picture book, but really it's page after page after page in the book of each of our lives. Let each of us turn in the movements and in the conversions of love. And let love always move through us in our turnings. Amen. May it be so, and may you live in blessing.